I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Hello, I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Kesha Podcasts, two Jews on the news. That's what we do each week, Yonit. And what a week for you. I've just been seeing some of these pictures and I have slight envy of cafe culture returning to your city. It looks Indeed. fantastic. I actually um, sat in a restaurant this week, Jonathan, um, after seven months. Uh, restaurants actually never reopened in Israel after the second lockdown ended in October. So many, many months. And uh, right now in Israel, if you're vaccinated twice, you get this uh, green like in an app, you get a green passport, which is a funny looking, I don't know, animated family in green walking around with suitcases. And so that is what you have to show in the entrance of a restaurant. And then you can sit inside. If you don't have that, you can sit outside. And just that sort of experience of something that was so, you know, every day, and now you get to do it again uh, is very exciting. But just a brief reflection on human behavior, the speed in which you shift from this is so exciting to mm, that dish wasn't great is like that happens in <laughs> minutes. That I can tell you when when you'll finally sit in the restaurant. What is that going to be? Mid-April, I think, or beginning of April? Uh, you just don't rub it that, in. You don't rub it in your I'm just, I'm just saying that just know that it will it will quickly shift from the excitement to the you know the BBC you know, the on the, version on 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 the BBC's Newsnight show, um, fronted by Emily Maitlis, who is the Yonit Levy. Oh, Britain. I want that in right. Well, you actually said it to the world. World, I've so I'm, now I'm happy it. now. That um, is a Emily, great they, compliment. They, they did an item on the BBC Newsnight show this week from Israel, uh, once again holding up Israel as a trailblazer, specifically because of the thing, uh, uh, the app, the the vaccine passport. But the truth is, I was watching it just for pictures of people <laughs> in restaurants because it, you know, people talk about sort of restaurant porn. You know, the idea of just just looking at dishes, looking at food, and looking at streets, which I obviously recognised, and thinking, my God, that's that's what normal life could be. And, you know, I was barely listening to all the high-minded policy stuff about you know vaccine uh, passports. Instead, just thinking, wow, they've they've reopened up that um, that little hummus place just by the old port. It looked fantastic. Um, so. So that is uh, what, what a treat for you. Indeed, indeed. And I have to say that uh, we, the whole vaccination uh, story has even hit uh, South Park. So I can say that something that we probably never thought was possible uh, for the prime minister to use South Park in his uh, political campaigning. We'll just hear a little bit about that because we'll talk about politics later. But let's put a little bit of that on. It's Air Israel with enough vaccines for every adult in town. I love that because the, you know South Park is meant to be the kind of rebel anti-establishment, <laughs> you know, anti-authority show, and there once again it's Israel as this kind of vaccine model. And of course, I mean, no politician could resist that. No, and uh, let's say Benjamin Netanyahu, probably not the average South Park viewer, right? But still using <laughs> this and uh, sharing it. And I'm not sure the writers of South Park intended for this to be uh, happening, but it is. So uh, what about your side? Anything big happening in the UK this week? Anything uh, everyone is talking about? I can't imagine what you mean. <laughs> um, you know, Britain is so rarely in the global news. I mean, we've got used to that now. The one thing that fascinates people about this country the world over, and we know it from the uh, Netflix show The Crown, is anything to do with the royal family. And so this week has all been Harry and Meghan. And I have to say, my first reaction to it in a way was, okay, now you know we're in an easier phase of the pandemic. If the number one story <laughs> when you wake up 
on the radio news is Harry and Meghan. Even though, of course, lots of serious issues raised, you know, it's a kind of luxury commodity a bit to be talking about uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex rather than what we were talking about three or four months ago, which is, you know, hospitals overwhelmed with a terrible killer disease. Uh, it's, you know, obviously, look, it's gripped everyone here. It fascinates me how it's gripped people elsewhere, including obviously centrally the United States, where the Harry and Meghan interview originated, sitting down with Oprah Winfrey for, I think, two hours. Um, I think they're, they're, the story is they've recorded more than three hours. So I think there'll be a bit of a illicit market in the cutting room floor <laughs> outtakes. Um, but it was a look, it was it was genuinely interesting. Uh, the thing that was the, the thing that leapt out of me uh, was the cyclical nature of this thing, because 26 years ago, really a generation ago, uh, the world was similarly gripped by Harry's mother, Diana, doing an, again a TV interview with the BBC on that occasion, where she, it was seen as explosive, her revelation. She essentially revealed that her husband, Prince Charles, the heir to the throne, uh, had been unfaithful to her, famously said there were three of us in this marriage. And, you know, that we come round again. And I've seen younger colleagues reacting to this as if nothing like it has ever happened before. <laughs> There's something about the, this Windsor storyline that does repeat itself. A generation before Diana, the storyline was all about Princess Margaret, the Queen's younger sister, who again was thwarted in love because she was uh, in love with a man who was not deemed suitable by the palace. So this seems to come round and round it matters a little bit to this country because this family, under our system, generates our head of state by bloodline. But why it fascinates everyone else in Israel, <laughs> America, and everywhere else, well, you tell me. Well, first of all, I have to tell our listeners that there is a Republican in our midst, right? I mean, uh, Jonathan, I want to quote, this has been my dream for a long time, quoting you back to you, right? <laughs> you wrote a piece um, on the event of the Queen's 80th birthday, uh, which is almost 15 years ago, a piece titled Elizabeth the Last, essentially saying that she's the best thing about the monarchy, but the institution is finished. Maybe we should talk separately about what constitutes as a good birthday present and not, but this was what you wrote on her 80th birthday. And I want to quote from this. You wrote, most democracies abandoned such lunacy centuries ago, but here it persists. We talk and talk about social mobility, but on our national ladder, the top rung is always out of reach. Symbols matter, and our central one says that Britain is a place where birth still determines rank. Um, vintage Friedland, I think. And, <laughs> um, and, and I wonder when I read this, first of all, how many are like you are there? I mean, are there like 20% of uh, Brits are, are Republicans or 30% or think that, that, you know, that the uh, monarchy uh, should end? But also, do, do these kinds of stories, like the Meghan, Harry interview, et cetera, make you sit at home and say, say you know, I was right. <laughs> I mean, does that have any connection to it? You know, kind of not anymore. I mean, you're quite right. So I am, you know, I hasten to add for our American listeners, a Republican with a small R. Yes. Um, you know, this is in this country, that means you want there to be an elected head of state. And yeah, Mike, the first book I wrote, the subtitle of it was The Case for a British Republic. And it's always been, truthfully, a minority sport. You know, it is an unfashionable cause. The support for it wavers between about one in four and at a peak one in three, but never much more 
than that. More um, than the Israeli it, it does, left, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that. It, go, it sort of goes, you know, it waxes and wanes depending a bit on things like this. And so in the Diana week, the famous Diana week following Diana's death, where the Windsors were at their most unpopular really since the war, um, it, it, you know, upticked and I ticked upwards a bit into the, you know, maybe it nudged 40%. But most of the time, it doesn't. And the reason is, as you, you know, kindly, flatteringly quoted from that piece, the figure of the queen herself. Because mm. what someone like me always goes around saying is this idea, the principle, is so crazy. Because, you know, if you were getting on board a flight, once the travel restrictions are lifted, lifted and the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking, I should tell you I'm not myself a pilot but don't worry, my dad was. <laughs> you'd all flood. You know, you'd, you'd rush off the plane, right? No one would would do that. And yet, we say that this job of being the head of state, we contract out to this one family by heredity. So I don't think you could defend it in principle. The problem, the big sort of human roadblock in the way of this argument, has always been the person of the queen herself who you just could not get anybody to perform the role of head of state better. I mean, she's just been flawless, almost never get put to, you know, never says what she thinks, never puts a foot wrong, uh, and remains somebody who everybody feels they have a stake in, particularly good because of sheer longevity. I mean, she's been around since what to me is the defining moment of the founding moment of modern Britain, which was 1940, you know, when Britain stood alone, uh, against the Nazis and against Hitler. You look at the archive footage there of her father, uh, King George VI, on the balcony, and she's there. Winston yeah. Churchill, the king, and her, Princess Elizabeth. She takes us right back to our sort of founding myth of 1940. You're never going to win an argument while she's there. Once she's gone, different argument. But for 25 years, I've sort of parked my small r republicanism <laughs> because I thought... Um, you know, this is a bit, while she's there, it's a lost cause. Maybe it comes back a bit now because people are saying, particularly the younger generation, this institution cannot represent me, especially if it's racist. And that was such the, the big incendiary claim uh, by, by Meghan and Harry. So, you know, it may be, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> I understand. But I, I wonder, since we don't have a, I mean, Jews are not involved specifically in the story, thankfully. But in general, um, do does the Jewish community have an opinion one way or the other? I mean, are, are you minority amongst your own people? Or, I mean, how does that work? Does Oh, big time minority. So Jews are unbelievably monarchist. And in mm -hmm. quite sort of, I find it almost endearing. You will never hear the national anthem sung, sung in this country in in regular circumstances, with one exception. And now it's changing a bit, but you would go to a Jewish wedding or a bar mitzvah and they would stand up and sing God Save the Queen, <laughs> right? And it was like these sort of grateful immigrants who thank you yeah. to the host country. You'd go to a regular non-Jewish wedding and nobody sang the national anthem. That to me was a, <laughs> you know, I was in my 20s before I realized that it's not normal to do this. So Jews are tremendously nervous about being seen to challenge the monarchy. And there were people, older relatives of my own family, who when I published that book, you know, Case for a British Republic, Bring Home the Revolution, it was called, they were saying, look, I'm nervous. That's not for us, they said. You know, other people can raise this, but our position should be, we're grateful we're here. It's nice of them to let us in. And we do not question the people symbolically at the top. And you know, that in a we funny like way- stability. Jews yeah, like it's stability. And there are powerful arguments for monarchy. Exactly. Stability is one. And the other is having something which is outside 
politics and a lot of people, older Jews again, believe, you know, the persecution of the Jews in the 1940s could not have happened in Britain because the king would never have allowed it. They slightly gloss over the fact that the actual king, Edward VIII, was a Hitler admirer and went to meet... <laughs> a small historic uh, detail there. Yeah, that's a little yes. footnote they try and gloss over. But no, Jews are, tend to be uncomfortable with small R republicanism. It isn't their favourite thing. And so they tend to keep their head down. But, you know, I, I'm afraid I broke that little... Uh, tradition. Uh, you'll never get an OBE. With, I'm very worried. With, with talking like this, you'll never get an OBE. No, <laughs> I will never be a commander of the order of the British Empire. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had to think about this, I mean, not, not only through the Jewish angle, obviously, and I don't want to sound flippant, but when you look at it from this historical perspective and you think of Henry VIII or Richard III to the extent that you believe the Shakespearean version of that, I mean, all things considered, they're solving their problems inside the monarchy in a less violent way. I mean, they have come come along although, although i would have loved to see the oprah interviewing henry the eighth that <laughs> is something i would want to see right um so so that's and, and another thing i could think of just while watching it was how in the world we live in celebrity just trumps royalty right i mean it in a sense you you uh, you know they get to do all of the the things right they'll stand in a pretty dress they'll, they're well funded they'll wave to the crowds and the fans but they don't have they're not encumbered by the obligations of what it means to be uh, a monarch right it, a netflix deal is is better than nobility in that in that regard yeah people here are calling them the duke and duchess of netflix <laughs> and it is it's you know, this interview was this collision between celebrity and monarchy and it's been fascinating to watch which is the more powerful but you're right monarchy works because it's not like celebrity it functions completely in a different way which is mystery and non-disclosure and mystique you know the advice from the 19th century was do not let too much daylight in upon magic you know that the queen and the king they work as figures if they don't if they're not like ordinary people and yet the kind of current appetite for celebrity is for them to be you know we of course we've got contradictory demands we want celebrities to be just like us but also kind of superhuman more beautiful more extraordinary than anyone else so the, the demands are conflicting the, the one thing i would say is this dysfunction that we've seen in the family the windsor family is also its function its dysfunctionality is its function why because part of its function is to be a distraction and a soap opera a drama that we all follow it's a telenovela in in uh, uh in cut glass english and the idea is that you watch it and you take sides and you root for as i said princess margaret or uh, or or elizabeth in the 60s diana or charles in the 90s you know harry and meghan or kate and william now uh, their their family dysfunction, which is not fun for them, is the, the, the is them doing their job. It's them performing the function of the monarchy and giving us a soap opera to talk about, just like you and I are doing right now. <laughs> right, and I can't not wonder though. I mean, the whole attempt at uh, republicanism. How'd that work out last time? By the way, Jonathan. The last time oh, yeah, we tried no, that. It didn't, that it was didn't a big success, up. wasn't it? <laughs> it didn't end up. We take here. it back. We take it back. Okay, but the uh, he doesn't have any head anymore. Um, but no, uh, but but seriously, I mean, don't, aren't you worried that British that that British identity is, you know, if you throw out the monarchy, you're throwing at such a large part of what it means to to be British. 
Well, I don't think that. And I look you look around, you know, people always go on about tourism and you go across, you take the Eurostar to France and there's plenty of tourists still going to Versailles, even though, you know, there's no king there anymore. People will still do that here. They'll love looking at all the palaces. No, I think there's more to British identity than that. But look, I don't pretend it's not an up hill struggle and perhaps a lost <laughs> cause the queen is almost a, a permanent fixture that is impossible to budge which seamlessly puts me in mind of another permanent fixture <laughs> impossible to mean? budge and that must be i mean you know he might as well be a sort of bloodline head of state maybe <laughs> Netanyahu, you know uh, second only to the queen um and perhaps you know uh the prime minister president of uganda i mean who else has been there as long. Election day is coming on it. Just tell me, is it going to be <laughs> lots of excitement on election night, you anchoring the TV show, but in the end it's still BB there on his throne for another 5, 10, 20 years. I, I like the way that you shifted from a dysfunctional parliamentary monarchy to just dysfunction um, here, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, look, obviously elections are 11 days away. Uh, I feel the need to say countdown to fourth elections, 11 days, uh, countdown to fifth elections, six months and 11 days. Um, but seriously, uh, look, there are three options here, right? I mean, generally speaking, just a guide to the baffled and bewildered. There are going to be three options. One of them you mentioned, Jonathan, quite elegantly, which is that Netanyahu wins, right? I mean, we, 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 we've seen this before once or twice. And we also know that there's this kind of rule that the more you think he's going to lose, he actually wins. Even when it seems like he doesn't have a coalition, he manages to, to, to fight through. Um, and in, so that is a, a, let's say an option with, with, um, with, with a lot of probability, right? You look at the, we, we opened up by saying that Israelis are going to restaurants and to cafes. Um, and obviously that that helps Netanyahu. By the way, also political conventions going on, right? There are three. You can have three hundred people in in a, in a room, which means that he has shifted his campaign from Zoom to the Netanyahu Roadshow, right? Which is all about. I've seen a few of these, right? Every evening, a different city, all about Lapid. He's talking about Lapid for an hour. You mentioned pilots uh, in the beginning of the episode. So it's basically his, his favorite metaphor is, uh, I can fly the plane, Lapid can't fly the plane. And he goes on and on about this for a while. Spoiler, they both can't fly a plane, right? None of them <laughs> know how to do this, literally, not metaphorically. Uh, and he goes on and on in his attempt to reel uh, Lapid in and make him make, make this into a battle, uh, head-to-head uh, battle. So again, Nanyao is, is, posi- is well positioned. Now, we have to maybe sort of pause and just say that Anyone thinking about the Israeli political system in that binary left versus right, right, what we've seen in these elections, there's either the Bougie Herzog, Tsipi Livni against Netanyahu, and of course, Benny Gantz three times against Netanyahu as the, the representative of the center left. This does not exist anymore. What you have is the Bibi block and the anti-Bibi block, the Bibi block, which is very homogenous, right? You have, of course, the Likud, you have the ultra-Orthodox parties, and you have the uh, extreme right. Um, and then you have the anti-Bibi block, which is much more diverse, right? You have, uh, on the right, anything between uh, uh, Victor Lieberman and Guidon Saar, very deep right, uh, Yair Lapid with his uh, party, and then you have Labour and Merits, which are much more at the left, uh, to the left. And any sort of... Th- thinking that you might have that maybe Lapid could be head of this kind of coalition, just think of the juggling. I mean, this is not juggling to, to make this happen. This is like a Cirque du Soleil trying to, to, to create this situation. So what you're going to be looking at uh, uh, come election night is to see the numbers, right? You're going to want to see if Netanyahu's block has 61, you know he has a coalition. If the other block has 61, less likely you know he has a coalition. But the most important player now in this story is Naftali Bennett. 
I'll get to him in a minute because there's a crazy scenario involved here. But before that, uh, you have to say, if you have something close to a 60-60 scenario, right, that the BB block is 60 in this, I'm sorry, there's going to be some math on this program. We probably should have said that earlier. Uh, So if you have the 60-60 situation, then you know you're going to fifth elections. You know that that is a, a completely plausible scenario, right? You have the uh, Israeli satire program called Eretz Nederet. All of their their cast of actors said that if we're going to fifth elections, they're going to create, they're start a, their own party and, and run, which is not the craziest thing that ever happened in Israeli politics, one might add. Not at all. I could see that happening. <laughs> and at least it'll be funny, you know what I'm saying, if we're dragged into these fifth elections. Now, I want to talk about the crazy scenario. Are you ready for that? From the people yeah, who gave you crazy, the Benny yeah. Gantz might be prime minister in the first episode, I want to talk about, are you sitting down? Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Now this is this is a this is a you know it's crazy but it's not impossible. Now let me let let me I I will walk you through it how this can happen. Now again Naftali Bennett um, has been very careful in avoiding. Uh, to avoid affiliating himself with either the pro-BB uh, camp or the anti-BB camp, right? He's refusing to say, I'm not, I don't know say I'm going to join Netanyahu. I'm not saying I'm not going to join him. Let's see what happens. Now, let's walk through this scenario, right? Uh, it, on election night, it appears that no side has a coalition without Bennett's party, right? So Bennett can choose to the natural choice, obviously, to go with Netanyahu. Netanyahu will give him the world, right? He will say, take any ministry you want, um, get a Netflix deal, uh, and most importantly, I'll let you into the Likud, right, which he has been barred entry to because of, according to media reports, uh, Sarah Netanyahu's uh, feelings towards him. Um, and and this is what he will get, right? Netanyahu can offer him the moon, but he can't offer him one thing, and that is being prime minister. So theoretically speaking, he can walk across the street to the other side and say to the Lieberman, Gidon Sar, Yair Lapid block, guys, I'll join you, but I want to be prime minister. Uh, or any sort of rotation around that, right? I'll be prime minister for a year. Yeah, Lapid will be prime minister for the rest. Whatever. That is, again, it, it seems to be impossible because it, 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 the condition is, you need two conditions. One, that Naftali Bennett is ready to bury Netanyahu politically. I mean, he wants to inherit him, but is he ready to actually be the one to bury him? And the second thing you need is for Lapid to uh, say, you know what, I will compromise. Now, he, in his, and this is important to say, in all of his public statements, I interviewed him this week, it's quite rare, he doesn't talk a lot, he's trying to, like, be under the radar. He said, it's more important for me to top on Netanyahu than it is for me to become prime minister. So essentially, the subtext is, I might allow for this scenario. But in reality, if Lapid brings in 20 or 23 seats, Will he actually move aside for someone who brought in 12 or 13 seats like Naftali Bennett? Will Lapid actually tell his voters, I will allow for this man who is leader of the settler movement to become prime minister with your votes? Um, I mean, the anti-BB pl- block wants to topple Netanyahu, but this could be a, a bridge too far or an outpost too far. Uh, exactly. I think that. that is what, to me, to my mind, that's the million dollar question is, you know, um, the likes of Meretz or Labour voters, is their loathing of BB so strong, their desire to see him gone so strong that they would say, yeah, we would rather have Naftali Bennett in there if that is the price 
we have to pay to get rid of Bibi. I, I don't know. You know, you you would know that. But that is such an extraordinary idea that we don't like this this prime minister because, well, this is the question: Do we not like him because he's right wing, and therefore we want someone even more right wing in the form of Naftali Bennett or Gilan Saar, both of whom have extraordinary record of statements on the on the sort of big national question? Or do they say, you know, whatever it takes, just to have the guy gone, and then then we'll deal with it? I suppose the re, the logic is. That is the one thing the opposition bloc do have in common. As you've been saying uh, on this podcast, it isn't a left bloc or right bloc. It is a pro-BB bloc and an anti-BB bloc. And if if that's the, the only glue that binds them together, in a way they have to follow that through and press the button on, on BB. Indeed. Look, uh, again, this is a question of math. And if Naftali Bennett comes into that bloc, then you actually don't need Meretz, because you have enough seats to form a coalition. But you already have members of parliament in Meretz saying that they would sit, they didn't say Naftali Bennett, they said they would sit under Gidon Saar as prime minister, right? So you already have them crossing this sort of threshold. You have Lieberman, right? We used to talk about Lieberman as the far, far right. He just kind of moved to the center because there are more far right parties uh, more than than he is. But he already said he would sit with Meretz just to topple Netanyahu. So you have a lot of people saying that they would go the extra mile, still, I don't see it in the numbers. What is looks clear, you know, more, uh, an, uh, I think, a probable option now is actually for Netanyahu to, to be able to form this government. Again, he will need Naftali Bennett. Um, and it, 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 I just want to point out two extra points about Netanyahu himself. A, not such a bad thing for him, fifth elections, right? I mean, he'd love to, to win, but if the option is fifth elections, he just drags out his caretaker government for another couple of months, right? That's not bad, necessarily. Um, and that's so, the so, thing, it's possession is nine-tenths of the law, and he possesses that seat. And so all this delay and new elections and interims and all that, it all suits him brilliantly well because he gets to stay put. I mean, for people outside, it's difficult because... You know, of course, there are Bibi Netanyahu has, has strong support in among you know, a section of American Jewry and in the diaspora. Mainly, though, my impression has always been that they are usually opposed to Netanyahu. And when we say usually, this has gone on for you know twenty five years um, with, with these elections where Netanyahu is on the ballot. Usually, diaspora communities tend to not all overall, but a plurality or a majority supporting his opponent. I think that's quite difficult this time to get for for the, you know liberal American Jews to get behind Naftali Bennett, who famously said he could not imagine a Palestinian state within the next two hundred years. He would oppose it. And Gidon Saar, who says you know we should admit that the two state solution is over. We should annex uh, the occupied territories, and he wants more settlements built up in Jerusalem. Very hard for people who don't like Bibi to say, well, look, those guys represent the answer. I think the only one that people outside the kind of liberal communities I'm talking about would want is Yair Lapid. And as you've been explaining, he may not have the numbers, even if he does, within the anti-Bibi block, he does better than any of his rivals. True. Uh, I, I, you know, my, if I have to bet all of my money, I, I would say that we are going to continue to live this drama right in perpetuity. But I will say that this is such a complicated puzzle this time. I don't remember, and I told you last time, this is my ninth election I broadcast in Israel, um, um, averaging one every two years. Uh, so I was going to say, normally is, that would mean you're in your late 70s. But in glad, I think I have my skin tone. I mean, I have good skin, don't I? When you look at me, <laughs> um, for my late 70s. Um, so, so seriously, I mean, next time I'm anchoring it on Zoom, 
I swear. But the point is that the puzzle is so complicated. You have enough that one party won't pass the threshold. The whole picture changes, right? Even one mandate from here to there. There's a difference between Netanyahu having the 61 and Netanyahu having 60. It's going to be such a dramatic um, election night in, a, in at least a couple of days after that. We should hand out some awards, I think, you and me. It is time for us to nominate some chutzpah and some mensch uh, recipients. I've got an early bid for um, for chutzpah, um, which is I don't think we've had to, you know had enough time to talk about uh, anti-Semitism in Britain. We've done it a few times, but uh, left out uh, of our previous discussion was this character who is a professor at Bristol University. His name's David Miller. It's um, it caused a big uh, ruckus here with signatories and conflicting letters for and against. Uh, David Miller is very interested in revealing the secret shadowy networks that make power work, and he's got you know he's his his number one network is the Zionist network, which he believes uh, really determines the way the world works. And he mentions all these kind of very specific British Jewish institutions saying they are all secretly doing the work of Israel and they take their orders from the Israeli embassy. But the, the reason why I thought that the chutzpah thing goes to him is because among his targets, he hinted, he took on uh, an interfaith exercise, um, which is where Jewish and Muslim communities together made chicken soup at uh, an East London mosque. <laughs> It was a very so sort of sweet little exercise to say, see. we yes. both have this dish in common, you know, kosher and halal. And so two, these quite progressive, very liberal Jewish community and, a, and, 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 and a, their Muslim counterparts gathered and they made chicken soup together. David Miller said this project was itself, and uh, this was an Israeli-backed project to normalize Zionism within the Muslim community. It was secretly... <sighs> being directed from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and television. It may look to you, Yonit, like just a few very kind of well-meaning Jews making chicken soup, but no, this is the Mossad plot in action to rule the world. So I think through David chicken Miller soup. deserves... The Mossad plot to uh, rule the Mossad world plot, chicken, chicken soup? soup? I mean, you know, the idea of okay. your regular Friday night chicken soup is actually part of evidence of the great Zionist plot. Um, I think he des- deserves a chutzpah award for this week. And if you don't like that one, I've always got another option, which is Donald Trump this week sending out a kind of, uh, you know, a tweet monkey. He no longer has Twitter, but he put out a tweet length uh, statement or 280 characters saying, I hope you don't forget me. I'm the guy who invented the vaccine. You know, he was there in his his lab coat in the Pfizer laboratory, (laughs) you know, among all the test tubes all for the whole year. It was him who invented the vaccine. Forget that he called Corona said it was going to disappear. It was almost like a hoax. Uh, he's the real guy we should thank. I think you could give him the Chutz reward or David Miller. I'm spoiling you for choice, your need. I No, I, 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 I'm just taking both of them because you were so uh, accurate in giving your Chutz. I, I can't, I cannot compete with your Chutz We've got award double nominees. winners. Exactly. Double winners. But, so Mench, I will... Though? I will not even compete and I will just give you the Mensch uh, story. Go, on, go for your Mensch. Uh, you know that one of our... I think I would say sub-issues or subplots in this podcast uh, is language. Yeah. Uh, we talk about that a lot. And um, 
So my, my Mensch nominee this week is related to that. Um, and I want to talk about the Krieger family. Uh, they live in Boston. This is a story uh, that a good friend of the pod, um, Jeff Anisman, sent my way. Um, their father, Neil, passed away from COVID-19. And he was, according to all accounts, a funny, whimsical, great guy. And the family wanted to do something uh, to honor him and, dare I say, honor his style. So back in college, he invented a word. Um, and he was, uh, so, you know, the, the family said that he used it so often. They actually thought it was an actual word. The word is, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, orbisculate. And it, 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 the meaning of it is what happens or describes what happens when a citrus fruit squirts in your eye. Now, he ran with this for many years, and his children were actually convinced this was a real word to the extent that they would bet with their friends uh, that this is real. And then they would go to the dictionary and see it actually doesn't exist. So now... They've decided to launch a campaign in his honor and to get Orbisculate into the dictionary. Um, and they write, you know, I, we know this is not a standard tribute for a loved one, but we, he was an unconventional person, so it seems fitting to honor him in this unconventional way. And I just I I think love that's that story. I, I endorse that. And do, do we have any, since we are both language nerds, do <laughs> any word on the etymology, the origin of this unusual word? I, I did not see any of that, um, why, why this was specifically uh, um, uh, chosen. But, but, uh, but, but the whole story about it and the whole reason, you know, they, they write and they have a site for it as well. It's www.arbisculate.com. And they write there that um, they, they taught, he taught them to follow your own path. And when you don't like the solutions in front of you, make up your own path. So that is, I just, I just think that's lovely. No, it's lovely. And I think I'm a bigger nerd give, than um, you are, Jonathan, just for the record, if, you know, for Yeah, no, we, we, we can outdo each other on that. I think that's very good. I think we can throw the full um, unholy endorsement behind orbisculate as a word. I'd love to know uh, the origin, but it sounds so right. It's definitely a real thing, that squirt. <laughs> uh, and my nomination was going to be not so much a person as an institution. Uh, Rebranded and relaunched uh, this week is what was known as Bet Sot, the Museum of the Jewish People, often museum, it was sort of understood as Museum of the Jewish Diaspora uh, in Tel Aviv. It's rebranded and renamed Anu, uh, which means we, obviously. Um, but one thing, I mean, my memory of it, I remember going when I was a sort of gap year student in Israel, and, you know, I was so sort of enthused about everything Israeli and wanted to be in Israel. And therefore, it felt like a real drag to be uh, to have to go to a museum that was about the diaspora. That was the whole thing we were trying to get away from. We weren't interested. My attitude has, has changed completely since then, and as part of the, that's partly what we're doing on this podcast. You know, the diaspora matters to Israel. Israel matters to the diaspora. So it's absolutely right. There should be a place for that. Uh, but everything I'm, you know, obviously I haven't been. But the newly renovated Anu Museum does sound as if not only uh, it's dealt with sort of the potential boredom issues that I experienced in the 80s, but also that it's really sort of uh, got what things that it had got wrong, it's now got right. So it's for the whole of the diaspora. I think probably it's fair that there was a bit of a bias towards the Ashkenazi diaspora before. I think they've corrected that. But also realising that, you know, the sheer range of Jewish life. And so, you know, there is the uh, a scroll, the Megillat Esther, the book of Esther from Spain before the Spanish Inquisition. But there is also one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's trademark collars that she wore. In other words, reflecting the full range of Jewish life. And I think for Israel and many Israelis who are, you know, in some ways perhaps not fully aware of the sheer richness of Jewish life before Israel, I think uh, it's long overdue and it's a good thing. 
And uh, if the rebrand uh, gets more people to go through the doors, then why not? And so for Anu, uh, formerly the Bet Tatsutsot, I think they can be our institutional Mench of the Week, along with Orbiscalate, as our <laughs> Menchie word of the week. I agree. Can we have, uh, can you send some embarrassing pictures of you and your gap year in Israel? Um, Just for I like a present? They may have been destroyed by the um, <laughs> of time. Accidentally. I, I'll find one for you. I, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put them through quite a s- stringent selection process <laughs> before I dare show them. But yes, they do exist. You're quite right. That was the journalist in me asking. Um, so we are uh, winding up our program here from Bavli upon Yarkon and there uh, the Earl of London. And we are uh, <laughs> saying our thank yous to our executive producer, Lior Friedman, and also to Rome Atik, Yair Bashan, and Irad Eshel for original music. And we shall meet, Jonathan, next week, uh, which will be four days before the elections. So um, expect to find a very, very tense host on this side of the of the microphone no no you're a model of calm and (laughs) calm and collected do remember though if you've enjoyed it give us a review share it with your friends subscribe do all of those things but yes i'm looking forward to you and i speaking again next week the house of windsor uh, may have been may have fallen by then but i'm sure the house (laughs) of bb will still be standing strong cheerio you're neat bye jonathan (laughs) 